Small Face. I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines and hope a few interesting insights come out. Today I speak with Jason Clark. Jason and I were students in the same class at the Fletcher School's Global Master of Arts program. Jason is one of the most entrepreneurial people I know. His mind is always buzzing with new ideas and he's always got business projects cooking in the background. What sets Jason apart is his motivation to place positive social impact at the center of his ventures business models, not to do charity, but to make a difference on the lives he touches. Hi, Jason. Great to connect. Hey, Philippe. So, Jason, I remember you from our days uh, studying for our masters that you were always very, very entrepreneurial. There was always uh, a new business idea yep. uh, cooking in the background. So let, let me start by just asking you now, like, what are you up to now? Yeah, well, um, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. My mind's always thinking of, um, you know, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, and it'd be <laughs> even cooler if you could make, uh, you know, a decent amount of money doing it. Um, or, you know, or help a lot of people or, you know, so on and so on. So, yeah, so right now um, I, uh, I am, I co-founded and I'm, I'm the CEO of a, uh, it's hard to explain. There's not really a category for it in terms of it, but we're, uh, we work with artisanal gold miners in uh, DRC <laughs> and we're also opening in Mali. Um, so technically we're a mining services and export business. Um, but our goal is to partner with what we call cooperatives. They're really small, kind of organized groups uh, built into businesses. So they're they're organized into a, an actual business um, across DRC. Um, and sort of the best way to think of it is like uh, fair trade coffee. So we're working with you know we help professionalize mines, and and then we we bring in some mechanized equipment, a lot of technical services, uh, you know, of geologists and, um, and engineers on our team. Uh, and really we partner with local cooperatives to, um, uh, to, uh, help them see a sustainable, uh, livelihood from, from artisanal gold. That is incredible. So I think, um, it would be good just to mention what is DRC. I think some of our, Fellow GMappers may think it's um, uh, an acronym uh, from somewhere in the US or somewhere, but it, it stands for Democratic Republic of Congo, right. <laughs> and um, it's a country. I think you you would you would classify it as Central Africa, um, although it has a a border to the west. I think sea access on the west, yep. um, and artisanal gold. Um, how 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 on earth did you get into that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, so when I was, when I was at Fletcher, I was working with, and I had been working with uh, refugees and working in the refugee crisis uh, for quite some time. I spent almost, um, almost 15 years working professionally uh, with refugees across the world, specifically in the United States and also in the Middle East. Um, but one of the, one of the guys I met, uh, while while working with refugees was uh, at the time a young guy named uh, Everest. We call him Ava, um, but he was from he's from DRC. He was a child soldier uh, for about two years, I think, from the time he was ten to twelve, and then from twelve wow. till nineteen, uh, he grew up in refugee camp, a refugee camp in Kenya called Kakuma, and spent his whole you know formative teen years there. Uh, preteen and teen years there. Um, and so when he was resettled to Dallas, Texas, which is where I live, and I met him, I think within a few months of him being, being resettled here. And, um, you know, we, we became friends. We were, you know, at the time we were developing different things for refugees. Uh, when they arrived, you know, there's a lot of basic things that refugees need that anybody needs, you know, when they come to a new place, particularly yeah. someone who doesn't have a lot of resources, may or may not have a language, things like that. But some of the things that we did was really just to say, 
you know, can you, can you normalize life in a new place? So we started something called the Free Study Football League, which was the name of our organization at the time. Ava was one of the key players, uh, key guys kind of helping us form that league. And so anyway, we, we formed a really tight relationship and tight bond through that. He came to work for us. Uh, and over the years, he just kind of became my little brother. So I was introduced to what is artisanal gold uh, through my friend Ava, mm. uh, who came here yeah. to Dallas as a refugee. Um, his family is a part of a cooperative working in uh, South Kivu area, uh, South Kivu province of DRC. Um, anyway, it's a longer story, but he kind of, you know, he basically came to me and told me about what was going on. And I think for a lot of, you know, people who aren't familiar with the field, which is most everybody. Um, yeah. It's, it's, you know, your first thought goes to the movie Blood Diamond. You know, at least I know a lot of Americans. Yeah. It was very formative uh, in our minds to, you know, what's happening in, in a place like DRC. Uh, when it comes to minerals, you know, when it comes to, you know, all of the humanitarian crises that are sort of man-made. Uh, and so when my... You know, when Ava came to me with this, I was like, no way in the world am I going to be getting involved <laughs> uh, in, you know, conflict gold and DRC. You know, maybe that works for some people, but it doesn't work. doesn't work for me. It doesn't work here. Um, but, you know, come to find out there's a very legitimate, there's a very, um, you know, interesting uh, industry that uh, is really waiting to explode. And, um, yeah. and so you know, you know, what we realized was, is there's so many people, there's tens of thousands of artisanal miners, millions of artisanal miners across the world, uh, who really just need a good opportunity to be able to sell, uh, the, the minerals and really their backyard in a, in a legal way. And that's one of the bigger issues, but we're not there yet. So. So the so so the main challenge because I was I was wondering about that so so the re, the reason why your your friend Evan need, need, needed needed help with artisanal gold is less to do with the mechanics of extracting and producing right. gold but with bringing it to market because of course DRC is famous for for gold and lots of other minerals right. so what what makes it particularly challenging to bring it to market and and why why would every um, uh, believe believe that he could get help from from somebody who's not in the mining business, and, and bluntly speaking, um, f f from a kind of completely completely different uh, world. Uh, maybe you could touch oh, yeah. on South <clears throat> Kivu as well, because for for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the geography of uh, Central Africa, I mean that's one of the most complex uh, kind of regional political areas bordering Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi right. and has has had all kinds of governance and rebel issues for the last few decades and, and counting still counting today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, you're you're hundred percent right. And the question is why how could a guy uh, you know, half a world away with no experience or background in mining, um you know, wh how is it possible that that person can go and, and, and do something successful in this place, particularly is how complex it is. I mean, the complexities of the politics, uh, the politics themselves, but everything else along with it are so, so, so difficult. But the reality is, is yeah, getting to market is, is really almost impossible for artisanal miners. <laughs> really the political economy of, of artisanal gold worldwide is is a challenge you know when you know interestingly when blood diamond the movie came out um ngos uh human rights ngos utilized uh the momentum behind that film to push laws uh into you know well push laws to congress into the united states and the eu um and then that went out to other countries as well like in the u.s it's the dodd frank act section uh, 1502 and that we're specifically talking about not, you know, Americans not being able to, you know, sell or, you know, really purchase gold from DRC without massive, you know, running through massive hoops. And there were these laws that were formed that essentially were supposedly meant to, you know, keep, you know, international markets from profiting off of, you know, child labor and forced labor and all those things, which are well-intentioned. 
ultimately what it did was just, is just seal the black market. Um, you know, when these, when, when people have very little access to begin with to a marketplace, and then it becomes even more difficult to get to the, the difficulty equals money. It equals cost. It equals higher taxes. It equals more, more, more things that you have to pay for in order to get to your end destination. You know, it's a higher price for your consumer if it can get to your consumer. Uh, and so the international marketplace was almost an impossible reach at the time. And that's what's actually changing is some of the rules um, that are, uh, they're, they're not loosening as much as they're opening. It's very stringent what we have to go through uh, to, to get to a refiner in Dubai or Switzerland or anywhere else. What we realized was the opportunity was to connect with local cooperatives and that these local cooperatives needed a, a savvy partner. They needed a savvy business partner that could help them navigate this political economy, these structures, the OECD, uh, EU laws, US laws, work with all of the constraints that refiners have, that all your downstream uh, actors, you know, all these buyers, um, jewelry makers, et cetera, had these, all these hoops they had to go through. Your local artisanal miners know how to mine gold. You know, they don't have a lot of the, you know, equipment or mechanics, you know, to do it, but they know how to do it. Uh, a lot of them are, yeah. are engineers trained locally. They know the soil. They know, they know the, where the gold is a lot of times. Um, they're very, very savvy in terms of what is happening locally. Um, they needed a savvy international partner. And, and that right. is something that we were able to come to the table and become and partner with these groups to accomplish. And so there you 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 uh, you refer to the complexities of um, getting artisanal gold um, once it's I would say at an export point onto uh, global markets via so, so um, getting it uh, kind of certified so that it's it can go into the the international refining and all of that. What, what about uh, domestic challenges um f so from a lo local political economy right. w what kind of uh, uh hurdles uh do do artisan artisanal miners have to get through compared to um uh, some of the larger more established uh, either international companies or or, or kind of lo 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 local larger Maybe state state yeah, like industrial groups. Artisanal miners face just the uh, the gamut of challenges locally. They've got local rebel groups. Uh, they've got regional uh, rebel groups. Um, so in the, and then DRC, they're called Mai Mai. Uh, and these are you know the, there's 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 really hundreds of these rebel groups around. Uh, these groups come on site. They can introduce forced labor into a, into a space, a mining space. Uh, they can they can uh, demand illicit taxation into mining spaces, um, and then you've also got uh, the military. You've got you know there'll be just sections of of, of troops that will uh, you know you drive down any any road in a lot of these areas, and you've got um, illicit you got roadblocks doing illicit taxation by the military. Uh, hopefully, they're not listening uh, to this, but. Um, so you, there's, and, and then you've also got incursions from state-backed uh, rebel groups outside of DRC, and so um, you've you know you've got your local miner is not only if he were to do things legally, taxes are high, um, but he's got to deal with or she's got to deal with all this other illicit taxation that is coming right to their front door. Um, and so you've got, he's got a host of different people demanding taxes from them, um, throughout this, really throughout their day. So it's, it's really quite incredible. The hurdles that, that, that artisanal miners have to face. Um, in, in your collaboration with, with ever, uh, did you provide any uh, support to, to help him solve some of these local slash regional dynamics. Yeah. Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit uh, on, on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's, an, um, it's a very, uh, 
it's a fluid challenge. You know, it's it's not something that's you know solved with a period and you're done and you go on. It's something. It's a relational challenge that you deal with on uh, multiple levels. On a national level, uh, you're dealing with the military and and you you've got a lot of lobby work that you've got to do in Kinshasa and also in other cities like Bukavu that are where you have large military bases that would have you know different um, you know command posts uh, that you know the where the you know, command has to go down and sort of remove a roadblock for you. Uh, you've got the, sort of the national, provincial, then the local on that. Um, and then you've got relationship with rebel leaders, uh, re- relationships with rebel leaders that you've got to manage. Um, and so when we started our company, Society Artisanal, um, you know, I knew that this wasn't going to be a simple thing if you go and you you help, you know, provide technical expertise and, and new equipment um you know and and mine gold at that point um that's really the easy part you know we have to work with the local you know un um group which is minusco um we've got to work with you know local military we've got to work we have an intelligence group that we employ that we work with that's you know um helping us understand just the different risks and different uh points of vulnerability um you know, we work with all the local agencies as well. Uh, and it's it's a host and of groups is, we have to work with to do this. And because you mentioned at the start that the the the, the intent behind society artisanal uh, is not just to monetize gold, but it, it it's to be, um, to make a positive impact to, to uh cooperatives and and uh, individual uh workers yeah is the is the fact that the uh mission of uh the organization uh is there to to add uh add value to these lo- local community groups does that play in your favor in in um strengthening strengthening your 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 hand in this political economy uh, landscape. Yeah, definitely. You know, when we, we kind of, we have a, you know, protocol for engaging any, any new partner. Uh, and, and some of that protocol starts with, you know, of course, checking the legality of documents and things like that. I mean, we have just a crazy amount of international, uh, you know, sort of law and detail that we have to deal with. But, you know, on the, on the local level, it's, we go and meet with local chiefs first. Uh, we, we talk with local chiefs, what's, what's the environment like? We get their blessing. Um, and we meet with the local community and a lot of times local community have got things that they, they, they know there's gold where they are. They know there's minerals where they are and they know they're, they're valuable. Um, and when they, when they meet groups like us come in, there's not a lot of groups like ours, but when we come in, um, automatically we're saying, you know, how can we bring value to your community? And so we write into our contracts that it's typically about 5% of a profit share that we, that we're giving back to the local community. And that comes through things like road building, school building, um, whatever it is the community is saying they want about 5% of the profits from what we produce in that area, go back to the local community. Um, and so that's, it's a critical relationship. Everything in, everything in in an environment like this is relational, everything. And, yeah. and when you're bringing value to people, um, you know, they're bringing value to you too. There's a mutual, you know, exchange here, but when you're actually not just trying to take advantage of them, but you're tr- actually trying to bring value to this relationship, they protect you. So the, one of the reasons why we've found a lot of favor with local chiefs, local communities, local rebel groups, uh, rebel chiefs, and we've been able to do things that to our knowledge hasn't really been done um, yeah. is because our, our model is sort of a, almost like a hybrid of what an NGO, you know, mission or mandate would be uh, like a peace building group or something of that nature and a business and acknowledging that we believe sustainability in a community or even in an individual uh, is, is really founded on their economy. It's founded on the fact that they can pay for food that they can pay for kid, their kids to go to school yeah, yeah. and things like that. And if, if I could ask you, because 
I think some of our listeners who may not not be so familiar with uh, uh, Central Africa and, and and especially a place like DRC, where I mean the concept of a, what a state does is vastly different from what it is in a, in a country like like the US, uh, which is very from a business perspective is very rules based, right. uh, whereas DRC would be at the other extreme of being highly like like the reach of the like like dispense, dispensing state services is 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 actually going it's 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 done through um agreements between groups and relationships um so how how was it like for you to dive into that space like coming from from uh, a business environment in the US where you you almost have to hire a lawyer to cross the yeah. roads to DRC, where uh, that rules-based environment is is just uh, almost a complete opposite. And if I may ask, like, what role did you play? What role did uh, ever play? And could you somehow uh, was your foreignness an asset or a liability in such such discussions? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know. I, I lived in China, worked in China um, for a, a Hong Kong company, and this was in like 2005, 2006, and, and worked a lot with the government on regulations, permitting, you know, those kinds of things. So my, you know, my, a lot of my relationships were, you know, taking government officials to lunch, you know, things like that, you know, just trying to figure out what is this system, how does this system work? Um, and you know, I became close friends with a, with an attorney, a Chinese attorney there. And, and really he helped me really understand, um, the mindset of, of a Chinese business person or government official as best as I could understand it. And it just taught me a lot. Um, and, and from there I, I, you know, worked with refugees in the Middle East and specifically doing work in, in transactions in the Middle East, you know, and, 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 you know, particularly, Places like Beirut um, or Amman, Jordan, uh, or in, in Palestine, places like that. Um, you you kind of also learn that there's a way, you know, about doing things. In, in, in Arabic, they call it wasta. You know, when you have the ability to get something done that someone doesn't have to do for you. It may be their job even to do it, but but they don't have to do it, even though it might be their job. Um, and so, and, and you know, then then getting to work with just thousands and thousands of of refugees over the years from all over the world and you know really listening to the things that they had to say taught me a ton and so um that that prepared me to i guess be open to how things are done in drc not that i could sort of already know how that they would be done but really be open to that and yeah. And understand that there's a set of laws that criteria that I've got to maintain as being a you know U.S. citizen. This being you know a U.S. company with subsidiaries in DRC in Dubai, um, but also you know then we've got these OECD frameworks, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you have to kind of marry those two things, and um, and then you know where my partner, you know his role is is full time and. And DRC and his role is largely relational. He's not in our operations. We have, we have quite a fantastic team that's doing the operations. His role is really meeting with, you know, rebel chiefs, meeting with local officials, provincial directors, um, and, and really kind of casting the vision to how we want to partner with, uh, the infrastructure in DRC and how we want to partner with, um, be an economic partner, a social partner. Uh, a relational partner in DRC in terms of really seeing people for uh, the value that they have and not just trying to drain their resources, which we could go yeah, do yeah. as an international company. You can go and you can, you know, pass the, what they call the brown envelope, you know, full of, you know, cash, get the things that you need to done registration wise, and you can go exploit an area if you want to and, and send everything overseas, including the cash. But that really isn't what we want to do. We really want to see something transformative. Um, we also have to make a profit. We want to make a profit, but the profit, we believe the best profit is the one that's most sustainable for everybody involved, just like any good deal, which we learned 
at Fletcher, any great negotiation yeah. uh, means that there's value driven to every person at the table. And, and that's something that we look at um, uh, with every, every relationship we have there. I was w- wondering if, how do you uh, split the roles in a way between you uh, as a, as a Westerner, as a foreigner yeah. versus your, your partner as a, as a local, how, how do you play that to the, to your advantage? Yeah, I mean, you know, my partner, um, he has the education of growing up in a refugee camp of before that living on the streets in Nairobi as a 12 year old, um, as navigating being a child soldier with your parents having already been, uh, passed away. Um, there is an education that comes through, through that life that I can never have. Um, and, and then I have an education like getting to have gone to Fletcher and graduate GMAP. Uh, and then all the things that I've gotten to do with my life that allow me to navigate the international scene on this, that helped me understand also, you know, I talk directly with, you know, from the highest person on our team to the lowest person on our team. Um, I talk also with, with the chiefs of the area, but, but really I work on the international piece of this, um, you know, developing the business model, understanding the international norms that we have to deal with, developing our customer base across the world. Um, and, and sort of casting that vision to people. And my partner does something I could never do, you know, which is he's the guy on the ground, really, really forming those relationships and making it happen. Um, and, and so, um, there's a really, we have a great dynamic. Um, we're really fortunate that we have this kind of dynamic. Maybe I can, I'd like to kind of go back, back a bit in time and, and ask you, um, how did your passion for uh, social enterprise uh, begin? What, what was the what what kind of mo- motivated you to go in that direction in life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it probably started. Um, you know, I had a I had a clothing company in um, before the financial crisis uh, that you know, of course, happened in two thousand eight. I had a clothing company. That I'd started, and I think it was around 2006. I think it was 2006 when I came back from China, and um, it took me to Peru. Um, and I had also been in a lot of factories in China, um, really just kind of crisscrossing the whole country, and was in a lot of factories. And, and it was in a lot of factories in Peru uh, for clothing. And you know, my handler would take me to the sweatshops and show me, "Hey, here's." Here's the sweatshops. Here's where most of your clothing in the United States, you know, is really made. Like, you know, right. if you're if you're buying from Gap or Abercrombie or these, you know, this was back in 06 or something. You know, back, you know, yeah. they're going to show you this factory here, but this is actually where these products are made. And you can walk in that factory and see, yeah, in fact, these are the labels. Um I'm not going to say specifically yeah. Gap or, or Abercrombie, but you would see, you know, high, you know, high-end labels being, you know, being put on the clothes clothing there and you know just i think just kind of being a a regular human you see another person being exploited um and you you see the conditions that they're in and the place is already you know most of peru is already in uh, some level of poverty at the very least in comparison to where i'm from and right and then to see another layer of exploitation uh on that and is and to and to think uh I'm gonna be the one perpetuating this this exploitation um is you know it's just one of those things you come to it and say, I can't be a part of that um sorry, I'm gonna pause real quick my my son sure. is like shining a flashlight into my car right now, my five year old <laughs> I'm like, please go inside. <laughs> This actually probably should be on the podcast, but because uh, this this is real, this is actual real life of uh, trying to do this while while also having a family of four kids. Um, anyhow, um, yeah, I think I think being in Peru was really kind of the genesis of really thinking about not just seeing a commercial on TV about you know people who are hungry and things like that because those those are real, those are powerful things. But so, so you 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 started out. 
this was a clothing company really uh, a for-profit yeah. business mm-hmm. uh so, something something entrepreneurial you wanted to do yeah. and then being exposed to uh, the your, your own supply chain as part of setting up yeah. your business you realize oh my god there is a social cost yeah and that kind of prompted you to think all right maybe is there a, a way of doing things differently oh yeah absolutely. is that is that it- and it, it also it's something I carry with me today when I go to any stores, anything is when I, I know the true, yeah. I know the true cost <laughs> in terms of dollars for something, for something to be made correctly, meaning without exploiting a human being. Um, and so when I, you know, you, you see those things and you recognize, you know, I can tell you right now who, what, what companies are exploiting people based on prices. Uh, and, and just yeah. as the average consumer, we need to understand that. And so that, that really affected me. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm, I'm in here to make money. I'm, you know, I'm pursuing how I can do something I'm passionate about. I like doing, uh, drives me, I can make a great living from it, but I don't want, you know, that 10 year old over there to be working 14 hours a day so I can do all those things. There's gotta be a way that that doesn't have to be the status quo. Yeah. And so that prompted you to try to work with different suppliers or did it push you to just look for a completely different business? What, what, what was the, uh, what was the consequence of that, that, that realization? Well, the consequence was I, I found, uh, the right suppliers. Uh, we put controls in place to know, because if you want to know something, you can know it. Most, most companies right. don't want to know. They want to do a basic KYC, you know, know your counterparty. They want to, they want to just kind of lightly know that they're, it's kind of like see no evil. You know, don't show me yeah. what's <laughs> actually happening um, because it'll cost me a lot more money if I know that. If you really want to know something, you'll, you'll find it out. And so, no, you find a good supplier and then you put checks in place, your, due, your own due diligence to know whether or not your supply chain is harming people or your footprint, you know, is stepping on people. Um, it's not actually that difficult. It, it's really a question of and wh- what degree of profit are you going to put, uh, you know, over, over other people, over their livelihood and quality of life. And when we, when you were trying to characterize like what was wrong about the supply chain, um, was it about the, um, uh, the, the the age of the workers the uh, the environment the lighting uh, the number of hours or the fact that they had no access to um, to to school like how did you determine what was accept what would be acceptable and 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 and, and not yeah I mean and I, I I guess how did you then make a decision on on uh, yeah like like, like setting criteria for, yeah. for kind of minimum yeah, I mean, standards. Ultimately yeah. the, the minimum, you know, you can, you can't control like what kind of lighting is there. You can't control a lot of those things. And, and being a, being a Westerner, you know, someone you know, raised in, you know, I, I was raised kind of lower middle class, but you know, that's still a, a place of luxury for most of the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, the visuals coming from that space, you know, they're, they're stark, but to me, the, the bottom line is what are people being paid? And yeah. if someone, and we're always looking to find out, which is one of the first things we did, uh, when we partnered with USAID, when Society Artisanal partnered with USAID and DRC was, you know, what's the, what's the standard of living here and what, you yeah. know, what should be, and what does that mean? The same thing was with clothing. It's like, you know, what can people how can people live based on what I'm, I'm doing? Is this relationship, does this relationship have any mutual value to it? Oh, other than just elite capture, you know, other than just the owner or the boss of the shop, you know, who's, you know, who's sewing, you know, owns the sewing shop, et cetera, him making money or her making money. Um, It had Mm -hmm. to be that. And I spent, you know, weeks at a time, you know, living in those, in, in those places where the clothing from my company was being, made so to where yeah. the yarn's going where it's being dyed where it's being uh the patterns are being made where it's being sewn together where it's being labeled and packaged and shipped and i'm in each i was in all of those spaces to know that this is the this is this is 
where my footprint is in this country. Yeah. Um, you have to, you have to see it. You have to, you know, have a good due diligence apparatus in order to maintain it. Cause you know, I didn't live there. So what is it going to be like when I leave, you know, things like that. And what was the consequence of these changes to your supply chain at the consumer uh, end? Like I, I imagine your cost base was different and, but were you able to, how were you able to communicate that to your customer yeah. and, and, and what was the, what was the response? Yeah. You know, what, when I had that company, this was like pre Instagram. So, and, and even I sure. think Facebook at the time was not anything like it is today. Um, so, you know, social media marketing was not even a thing. Um, it was something you'd put on a label on a shirt, you know, of how this yeah, was yeah. made, uh, you know, what that process was. And people were beginning to appreciate that at that time. Uh, but it definitely yeah. meant that our, you know, our, instead of, a, let's say a t-shirt being, you know, two to $6, depending on what it is, everything, you know, our, our actual cost began at like $15 a, a unit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was, you know, maybe three times what other people would be paying. Wow. So yeah. obviously, yeah. you know, in retail, you're basically taking your cost, you know, and then your, your times three, uh, to, to get to what you want to sell it at. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's, there's other formulas out there, but, um, you know, it makes your, aren't your items pretty expensive. So what you're yeah, trying to yeah. do is essentially say, this is a lifestyle choice. It, it's yeah. that's, and that can be a fancy people will like to market that who aren't really doing the, the real work on the ground. They're just using those names and those titles. And there's a plenty of people in gold as well, or minerals as well, just using these names like fair trade or other things like that that aren't really doing the hard work on the ground and they're still really taking advantage of people. Um, yeah. And hmm. once you're in the space, you, it's a small space, you know, in terms of people that are in it and, and you know, pretty quickly who's doing what. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, I'd like to, because we, we spoke quite a bit about, um, social enterprise, but you also work directly, uh, with, with refugees. So, so completely nonprofit, mm-hmm. C- could you share a little bit how you got into that? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, so in 2008, um, I had my business, my clothing company had run for about a year and a half and the financial crisis had hit and we were about midway through that crisis. And, you know, my company basically had to shut down because we were wholesaling to high-end retailers. And about 70% of our customer base in terms of high-end boutiques um, also closed down. So we were basically first right. to shut down. Um, yeah. And in the same moment in time, I had a friend uh, who was working with refugees, and he invited uh, my wife and I to come and meet some of the people he was working with. And I had, I had no reference really for no frame of reference for refugees in the United States or even outside the United States at that time. I did, it's not something that was ever crossing my mind. And so he invited me to this area of Dallas, which is particularly at the time was known as being pretty dangerous. And, you know, so we went over there when I met, um, you know, it was a group of, a group of people that had just been resettled from, uh, I think mostly from Congo that had come out of Burundi and um met them hung out with them had a really just a great time just kind of for me it was i loved just meeting international people just people from other places with with interesting stories and backgrounds um and as we left uh that meeting uh we were robbed at gunpoint my wife and i robbed at gunpoint and we'd actually just gotten married so my wife had you know this purse with her that had all of this kind of gift cards and cash and stuff that you get, you know, at your oh, wedding. No. And, um, <clears throat> she didn't give it to him, but they were, you know, put a gun to my, in my ribs. Um, uh, and, uh, another guy, there's two guys, another guy had a knife and, um, oh, you know, no. just, you know, wanted, you know, I had like no cash in my wallet and was arguing with my wife about getting her purse and she wouldn't give it. Uh, so yeah, anyway, it was, we, you know, I didn't, I didn't get shot or anything. It, it turned out fine, but they, you know, they, they robbed us and took, you know, wallet and all that kind of stuff. And, and it just kind of was a really surreal moment. Uh, you know, I had, I had been 
you know, lived all over the world. And a lot of, a lot of GMappers will identify with the experience of being in a place that you're not from and not knowing, am I in a safe place? Am I not in a safe place? And this is this taxi driver trying to take me to the wrong area of town, take advantage of me. Like what's happening? I had, I had plenty of experience of wrestling taxi drivers in China. I mean, to the ground, you know, had lots of crazy experiences. I've, you know, been in the desert and, you know, Sudan with an AK-47 to me from, you know, rebels out there and things like that. Like there's a lot of things that you find yourself doing at times, but I was in Dallas and I'm sitting here getting robbed at gunpoint. And, um, and I kind of walked away from that experience that night. I was like, you know, the police were like, don't ever come back over here. And I was like, this is exactly where I'm coming back to. Like, this is, this is incredible. <laughs> you know, it's, there's people from all over the world here and they're, they're being integrated in some of the worst places in town. They're just poverty driven. There's crime all over the place. I was like, I want to, I want to be here. And I was just coming off of running my business, coming out of Peru and doing that kind of traveling there and seeing that and just seeing all these faces of, you know, refugees coming over. And I used to say like the people we're looking at have literally come from some of the places of the most highest, you know, crisis in the world. They've gotten on a plane and off a plane. They literally came from a place of crisis, sat on a, a huge metal bird got out of it and now they're in a, no, a completely new world but they're wearing the same clothes they have a taste for the same food they're speaking the same language and they have no idea where they are or what to do and i mean they're from everywhere every corner of the world and that was just really exciting to me to think about getting to know people like that and also getting to be a part of their flourishing in in whatever way possible and so that just drove me into um, that drove me into wanting to be a part of that. And so, you know, I started connecting with groups like the IRC, the International Rescue Committee and groups like that and ended up realizing that there was a really big gap in, in services, sustainable services for, for refugees and social services in terms of, you know, the, you know, the, the integration of people into a place. Um, and yeah. so we started, uh, a nonprofit and, you know, and, and just went from there. And uh, we, you know, I was a part of that for 13 years professionally. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And yeah. So it's kind of how it started. Wow. And is there, I'm, I'm sure there are many, but is there like a particular uh, moment that really stands out that you're particularly proud of um, in that 13 year journey that you'd yeah, like to share? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> You know, some of the, the greatest moments were like one of my closest friends right now. I met in Amman, Jordan. He's who's from Iraq. He was he was uh, seeking refuge in, in Jordan. I met him. He was running an NGO illegally, running an NGO, an international NGO in Jordan, and he hosted me and my wife in Jordan while we were there uh, working with refugees. And now, and then he actually happened to be resettled over to the United States from there, and he be, he came to work for us. For our, for our nonprofit. And so now he, he runs a lot of it, but um, the relationships are really the highlight. But one of the, one of the things that I, I love that we got to do was you know, I spent a lot of my time doing advocacy, lobbying Congress, you know, Texas right. Congress, U S Congress. Uh, we're uh, the seek the peace. Our nonprofit is recognized uh, by ECOSOC at the UN. So we're, we're a member of the United Nations there. Uh, and so um and but one of the great things we got to do is we had a program of actually training refugees to use their own voice. And so we we had this just simple kind of value, which we just call pass the mic, which was, you know, I'm a white guy in in Texas, you know, advocating for people of all these different backgrounds. Uh it's really it's really a, a moment where particularly when we started this was like these these people are more than capable to advocate for themselves. They're the best people to advocate for their, their people, for themselves, for their plight, for the crisis back home, for all these things. So we really turned our yeah. focus to really doing training. And so we, I got to see um, a lot of refugees be in the halls of Congress, speaking directly to members of Congress you know, about what the reality of, of being a refugee was, particularly in a moment, you think, you know, 2014, 15, 16, when refugee crisis got really political. 
you know, ISIS, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, went, you know, members of ISIS went through the refugee highway in Europe and ended up attacking that nightclub in Paris. Um, yeah, we yeah. were right in the mix of that political environment, particularly in Texas, but also in, in the United, you know, in, in DC. And that's when we, you know, refugees were able to just step into that space and say, you know, whatever you're hearing on Fox or CNN or whatever, look at me, you know, listen to my story. Um, yeah. And I love just being a part of seeing people just get to step into a space where they have more control, you know, more agency uh, to see their life improve. So it's, it sounds sounds like uh, the the uh, this initiative that that you that you uh, pushed pushed uh, had had two two, two um, major benefits. So one, of course, to r raise awareness of um, the the needs of the refugees in their own voice, but of course, by doing that, you also empowered the refugees. Give them a sense of being able to uh, uh, have a voice, exist, uh, and and, and uh, I guess the, the the psychological impact must have been really really powerful, yeah. uh, just on its own. I yeah. imagine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think like <clears throat> in that time, I, I would walk the halls of U.S. Congress with uh, you know printouts from you know congressional testimony. Uh, from, you know, then it was FBI director Comey talking about, you know, then it was all about our refugees, uh, particularly our Muslim refugees, terrorists, you know, that was the narrative that was yeah. everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, I have to go, I'd have to go in to just bring truth and fact into a, you know, a member of Congress's office and say, actually, let me read you what, you know, director Comey said, you know, under test, you know, under oath and testimony. And so it was just one of those things where you really had to parse how you were going to navigate these conversations and how you were going to bring, if you could at all, um, some yeah. level of reality to humanity. Um, right, and right, to right. see refugees do that. Um, I mean, I, I, I remember being in um, one Republican member of Congress's office who was very conservative, very anti-refugee. And we had um, uh, just a really sweet woman who was in her 70s that uh, went with us to this meeting and her son was uh, an interpreter for a special forces group in Iraq. Uh, he had right. been left behind there and basically they'd been told him, they had told him he's, there's no way they're going to get him out. Uh, and we, during the meeting, you know, the, the, the mother of this, this young man in Iraq began to tell her story, began to talk, began to speak directly to this member of Congress who you could see him just kind of like, soften up and you could see him drop the politics because he had essentially a, a mother figure speaking to him and in yeah, that yeah, moment wow. we yeah. we called up her son who was in hiding uh <laughs> and you could hear the static on the phone it was like watching a movie um you could almost just feel where he was and he he just then told a brief part of his story um and talked about the unit that he had had assisted, you know, and immediately this member instructed his chief of staff uh, to to go get this guy out. And yeah, you know, that was one of those moments where you see something. Did we change the world? No, but we changed the world for that guy and for his mom. Yeah, we were a part of that, uh, and that's kind of been a driving force for me as whether it's in DRC or anywhere else is I can't change the world, but that's not my criteria. The criteria I have is, can I affect change for those I'm yeah. around in the spaces that I'm in? Um, yeah. not yeah. always, yeah. Yeah. um, but you know, the, the goal for me is that I want to see that happen in whatever I'm involved in and whatever I'm doing. But what I've learned yeah. is, yeah. In that space, in the DRC space, and whatever it is, is the people around you have to want it more than you do. That's the only way it's sustainable, yeah. and, and usually they do. Yeah. Um, but it's a partnership. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, hey, this it's been a really, really powerful set of stories, Jason. I've, I've really, uh, I've really learned a lot. Like I know we've spoken a lot many times before, but uh, 
but uh, yeah, there's so many new things I've I've uh, I've learned here. Be- before we close, I, I just wanted to to ask if there's anything you'd like to anything else you'd like to share or, or anything you'd like to uh, to add. Gosh, I don't know. I think Philippe, we could talk for a long time. Uh, <laughs> know, we haven't even know. Uh, you know we're not even drinking uh, during this conversation, <laughs> unfortunately. No, I think you know just to I think like to the to the GMAP crowd that's out there is one of the things that I think um, I value so much about having besides you know getting to have gone to Fletcher which is such an honor um, but really there's such a cool part about it was in those GMAP cohorts is the people that you're with um, True. and so I mean we know we still talk to our almost our entire cohort you know I mean it's an yeah. active conversation that's happening and so I think there's just so much value to be derived from our lives kind of interacting that that's, that's something I just really loved, loved about GMAP. And so I would just kind of put that out there to any other GMAPers that are there is like, continue to look inward to your cohort and that, and that crowd. And, and there's just so much value to be in, in really so many cool things to, that will come out of that. And so, you know, obviously like having this conversation right now and some of the things, so um yeah great great no that's that's absolutely true and as as you said suggested it's, it's also part of why christian and i had this idea of launching this podcast is to give us a bit of a we don't really need one but to give us a bit of an excuse yeah. to 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 uh, perpetuate some of these amazing oh, i mean uh, this doesn't have to be a part of the podcast but you know i was i was in uh, i was trying to get into a certain